Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. All right, and let's get to it. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn how to interrupt the cycle of self-sabotage and create your own luck. My first guest is Gary John Bishop. Gary is one of the world's leading personal development experts and a New York Times and international best-selling author. His first book, Unf Yourself, his urban philosophy approach represents a new wave of personal empowerment and life mastery that has led to miraculous results in the quality and performance of people's lives. His newest book is Stop Doing That and Self-Sabotage and Demand Your Life Back. Gary, let's shifter together. <laughs> Yes, let's do it. Thanks for having me, Lisa. Oh, well, I am so delighted to welcome you back to the show. Gary shared some time with us when he was touring for his last book, and I'm eager to get into the subject of life sabotage. How right. many of us sabotage perfectly good lives for perfectly silly nonsense that's going on in our minds? Yeah, well, you know, in my experience of people, which is a little more than just the people I met at McDonald's the other night, it's quite a number of people. I think if you examine the average person's life, you'll see some form of sabotage going on. Yeah. Um, the, the thing that was always curious to me was it's never really made a lot of sense. You know, to me, it always seemed absurd. In fact, somebody could be really effective in one area of their life or maybe several or lots of areas of the life getting some areas of the life almost like helpless to this inevitable and um, so that's really what this, uh, this book is about. It's about uncovering that, finally uncovering that in a way that will empower you to do something about it. You know, a lot of us have these fantasies and dramas and lots of unresolved material that end up becoming the speed bumps or the stumbling blocks within our lives. And your newest book, Stop Doing That <laughs> <laughs> challenges us to just quit, to knock it off. Right. The point that I make in the book is, it's one thing you tell somebody, like, see that thing you're doing? Stop doing this thing, right? And I know the title says that, but the book reveals to you, like, the point of your self-sabotage. You actually see it in very real terms, your own self-sabotage and the point of it. And what I believe in what I'm saying in the book is, you can't actually knock it off until you get the point. See, there is a point to yours, very specifically yours. I mean, it would be awesome if you could just say to everybody, okay, that stuff you know you shouldn't do, you should just stop doing that now. If it was that simple, you know, like the self-help section and Barnes & Noble would be one shelf, right? So what I'm out to do is to have people actually get to the root, get to the source, like what's it about, where's it going, what's the point of it in a very personal way and when you see the point of your own self-sabotage, you'll have so many aha moments, so many dots will join together that, that cutting it out or stopping it will actually seem like a bit of a cakewalk. I like the approach. And when we talk about the, the self-sabotage as it plays out in our own lives, at some point, that behavior served. Right. So I look for myself. And in the book, I talk about these, what I call the three saboteurs. And I actually ask you very specific questions and take you down a specific pathway where you uncover, uncover your own personal saboteurs, like what are yours? But I, but I use myself as a guinea pig as often I do. And so one of the, my most, I feel as if my most significant saboteur is my own internal criticism of self, so of myself. And my own internal criticism of myself is that I'm not smart enough, 
And it's not always there in my thoughts. I'm not walking around every moment of every day saying I'm not smart enough. But it rises and falls. It's like a weight in the background of my thoughts. And I'd never really uncovered that to the degree that I have previous to this. I I hadn't really noticed the degree to which my life was organized around not smart enough. But the really revealing thing was, and this is the thing I think that will really pique people's curiosity about this. Not only is that a background noise for me in my life, like I'm not smart enough, and I'm overcoming it in life so that as I'm out to, you know, do what I can do to overcome this perceived imperfection, but I'm also out to perpetuate it. I'm out to prove it. And the sole reason for proving it is only to give me some, you know, sense of certainty or gravity in life. Like there must be some certainty for us to bump up against in life. And so for each of us, there's this thing called a personal conclusion that you're constantly overcoming and then proving and then overcoming and then proving and then overcoming and then proving. And then you die. (laughs) (laughs) It's, 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 it's as simple and as complicated as that. (laughs) Right. 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 Yeah. But when you see like, I mean, when I actually started to put the pieces together, Lisa, like I started to think about how many turns have I taken in life to both perpetuate that I'm not smart enough, right? So I would follow a pathway of avoiding being intellectually challenged. Mm, Dumb yourself down. Right, would continue to prove that I'm not smart enough. Like, And I'll I'll look back in my life, like, you know, I had no sense of when I was 17 or 18 saying to myself, well, I'm not going to go to college because I'm not smart enough. No, in my mind, it was like, I'm not going because I don't want to go. It doesn't appeal to me, I would say. It's not my thing. College isn't my thing. I want to go out in the world and make a living. And, you know, I want to get into it. I didn't see what was kind of deep in the background, like pushing me in that direction. And and that's really the point in many ways of this book is for people to dig in. It wasn't it wasn't an easy book to write in under 40,000 words. It was very, very challenging. But I really feel as if I've given people a very powerful template to understand what's going on with them at the very heart, or as I call it, the blackened heart of your self-sabotage. Ooh, that, that, the image of that is just nasty and uncomfortable. Sure, right. <laughs> you know? right, right. And, and the book's kind of like that. The book is like, it's my first book, I feel as if was, very motivating, very at times confronting, but uplifting. But there's a part of this book where it was just like, you know, trawling through the mud of one's most devious self. And um, that was, it was hard. It was challenging to write. I wouldn't say it was hard, but it was definitely challenging to write. And it's challenging for people to engage with. But if you're somebody who's up to, you know, revealing yourself in new and ever increasing realms of, freedom and self-expression and power. This is the kind of work that you have to do from time to time. You need to kind of take a deep dive in. I will say that by the end of the week, though, you know, like I light you up like a Christmas tree and get you in touch with something far greater and far more powerful than one's propensity for self-sabotage. So what I hear you saying is that we're doing a little internal housekeeping here. For sure. And it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not arrogant enough to think that Everything that I'm saying here is the, is the final destination for anybody. And my view of life and of, as human beings is there's always work to be done. There's always things to do. And there's always new levels of self to reach for. Um, because, you know, like somebody once told me a long time ago, you know, yesterday's transformation is today's ego trip. Um, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> right. Somebody a lot smarter than I told me that. So, but I loved it too. And I, and I, and I really got like, you know, like we do kind of settle for the last big bit of ground that we took. Um, and, and I think that in some ways connected to this desire for things to be predictable, right? At least certain in some way. So, you know, every time we take on a big transformation in our lives, it's uncertain. It brings in, sometimes it brings in upset and discourse. But after it, it you, you look back and you think it was totally worthwhile. 
let me go back to um, the saboteurs because you you spoke about um, the inner critic and in your case of uh, not being smart enough. There are two other common saboteurs that you write about in your book. Stop doing that. What are they? Right. Well, they're all criticisms, right? I mean, I would, I would, I would love it if at the heart of every human being was a nurturing, helpful voice for possibility. I mean, that would be awesome if you woke up in the morning, you know, in the background of your thoughts was, you know, you're amazing, you know. But come that's on, yeah. generally... C- come on, darling, right. you can do this, you beautiful thing. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, right. Wouldn't that be great? Like, people are amazing. Life is awesome. Now, I'm not saying that sometimes we don't tell ourselves these things because we do, but my view is that it's to overcome something else, like something else kind of burrowing away. And the only reason why there's something else burrowing away is it kind of propels you to get over it. So as a, as a body of, or a species, we are getting better at being what we were before. And we're constantly doing it. One of the things that drives that is that criticism of self that you're constantly trying to get over. And by the way, I'm not saying anything particularly new here. This is very much what uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist, talked about when he said human beings live lives in pursuit of being. So it's a game of pursuit is to overcome something. But the second saboteur is not only a criticism. The first one is a criticism of self. The second one is a criticism of others. So there's a certain way that we see people in a very general sense. And it can be something as simple as, well, you can't trust them. Or they don't care. Or they're dangerous. But you'll find at every level uh, in your interactions with other people, you're, there is a base camp. There's somewhere you're coming from. And that's what this uncovers. And then the third and final saboteur is this kind of, and I call it a conclusion about life. It's something you've just fundamentally determined that life is for you. And again, I use myself as an example in the book. But for me, when I wake up in the morning, uh, my fundamental experience of life is that it's a struggle. That can be, I have to interact with that every day. Like it's even when it's good, it's a struggle. And this is where the self-sabotage comes in, by the way. I quote an 18th century French psychologist by the name of Emile Coué. And he said, he said that obviously in French, it sounds a lot more interesting than with this Scottish accent, but still nonetheless. He, he said that whenever the conscious and subconscious conflict, the subconscious wins. Oh. So if you kind of take that a little further along the line, what he's really saying is whenever in life you're encountering a life that conflicts with your fundamental experience of life, your fundamental experience of life will win, even if you have to contort it to make it so. So for me, I notice like when I look back at my life, my finances had been a constant struggle for me and my wife. Like, and I had plenty of opportunities to set it straight, but somehow I would just keep going down these pathways. And after a while, after doing some of this work, I started to realize, like, no, I'm, I'm driving myself to the struggle. Like, if it's not a struggle, I'm going to make it one. Yeah. And and I and I do notice that even on vacation, like, I'm not. I'm. Just, I, I love going on vacation. It's brilliant, but. At some point, I'm kind of like itching to get going. Come on. And so even any success that I've had in my career, it never pacifies the struggle. Struggle always arises. Yeah. It's um, it's in the DNA. Like it's in the emotional DNA is what you're saying. Right. So so what I'm I'm saying is, yeah, it's a very good way to put it. Like when I wake up in the morning, like you and everybody listening to this right now, we have a very specific experience of being alive. It's very specific. It's not arbitrary and it's repetitive. That is, when I wake up in the morning, I don't, there's a range of emotions and experiences that I'm waking up to, into, but they're never outside of that range. Right? So there's people, we like to imagine that in the morning we wake up into the world when in fact we don't. We wake up into our world. That is what it's like for us to be us in this existence. That is, you have a locus. We are going to take a break and then we're going to continue with our shift 
stirring conversation with Gary John Bishop about his newest book, Stop Doing That and Self-Sabotage and Demand Your Life Back. To learn more about Gary and his work, please go to GaryJohnBishop.com, on Twitter at GaryJohnBishop, and on Facebook, that page is One in Seven Billion. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Before we take that pause, I want to introduce you to my new fiendish entertainment obsession. Best Fiends is a free downloadable app that is a seriously good fun way to redirect that busy brain of yours from current events, anxiety and worry to amusing interactive mind play that engages the old noggin in new ways to solve puzzles, collect characters and compete with other people you know and people you don't. For me, it's a little stress relief in the palm of my hand. I like to carve out a few minutes each day to focus my attention on this highly engaging digital universe that challenges me in a very good way. Best Fiends gives my brain a rest from my daily routine and transports me to another colorful realm that is a unique and exciting puzzle experience, unlike any other out there in the digisphere. Right now, I'm on level 300 and climbing through the ranks proudly. Best Fiends never gets old. Every month, there is fresh new dynamic content and events that will delight your senses. And here's the cool part. Best Fiends can be played anywhere, and you do not need Wi-Fi access or use cellular data to play. So why not join me in my happy, harmless obsession over at Best Fiends? Engage your brain and free your mind with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Now here comes the break. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Talking with Gary John Bishop about interrupting the cycle of self-sabotage and creating our own luck. Let's get back to the conversation. Gary, prior to the break, we were talking about the self-sabotaging cycle of the human existence, right? That most of us are our own worst enemies and that we reflexively go back to an emotional DNA set point, it seems, in that at least that's what I hear you saying. I was yep. thinking as we were on the break about gorillas. Gorillas don't question their worthiness. Right. But we, <laughs> right. we as humans constantly question this. Right. Well, you know, that's fundamentally down to a gorilla is aware that it's a gorilla. Yeah. Right. So it's doing gorilla stuff. So that is, it has an awareness. A human being has another part, like an awareness of its own awareness. Yeah. So that is, there are times when you get to observe yourself, right? Gorilla doesn't sit there, you know, kind of looking around going, there's got to be more to it than this. It's, you know, gorillas aren't doing that. Your cat's not doing that either. Yeah. Neither is your dog. Your dog doesn't wake up in the morning look at the food that you've given it and go, really? This again? Right? Because yeah. there's no, it's just engaged with what's right in front of its face. So it's it's aware of what's right there. And it's your dog or your cat, or hopefully you don't have a pet gorilla, but you never know. Those animals are there for what's there, right there in that moment. Human beings, not quite. Mostly in some alternate reality of their thoughts, right? And pondering and predicting, and overcoming. So um, there's a, just a base point. There's a point from which you're approaching everything in life. There's a, there is a locus. There's a place on a map where you're coming from, but, uh, but that's the point of the, kind of the subconscious, if you like, that you ultimately must keep returning to when playing life by this model. You have to kind of reach and then return, and then reach and return. And that's why we often have that experience of being the hamster on the wheel. If only we could return to this very primitive 
model while maintaining all of the evolutionary faculties, right, that humans have, sort of the hybrid of the two, you know, going back to the gorilla life or the dog life where life is just a big adventure. You know, we get up, we do our thing, we go to sleep, we get up, we do our thing. And like you say, you know, eventually we die. Yes, this is the this is the life cycle, but life is maximized each day. Right. I mean, you're a particularly aware human being. So that is awareness isn't like knowledge. So when you work on yourself, you're raising your awareness. That is, you're expanding your experience. And mostly, by the way, we use this term a lot these days about being awake or being aware. And I'm not too sure whether a lot of the people that are saying that really know what that is. Right. To them, it seems like this accumulation of knowledge. But but awareness is, in my view, what you're uncovering about yourself. It's not these kind of general observations about society, right? It's more like, what am I seeing about myself? What am I, what do I know about myself now in such a way that it changes me? Like I, there are things that I no longer do or there are things that I now do given what I discovered. To me, that's awareness. To me, that's like, The more you reveal about yourself, the more you have the opportunity to act in new ways. You have an opportunity to behave in new ways. And that's what I'm interested in. What comes up for me when you're saying this is the word attention. Because when we're really paying attention, when we're really noticing what's going on internally, externally, for me, this is part of the awareness. It's not just to have sort of this observer state. But in paying attention, yeah. it's about the experiential state of observation. Yeah. In the book, I talk about the absurdity of people saying, you know, stuff like, be here, right? Like there's some kind of alternative, <laughs> right? You're always here. The question is, are you here for what's here? Which our friends, the gorillas, cats and dogs are here for what's here. Yeah. You and I aren't always here for what's here. Yes, unfortunately. Right. And then, but the more, and and that is, in my view, again, very much the point of personal development is to be increasingly here for what's here, right? To be, I mean, if you've got any little ones in your family or extended family or even in your neighborhood, any kid under the age of, say, four, they are completely here for what's here. No question. Isn't that gorgeous? Yeah. That's and, it. And, right. And not a care, by the way. It's all just, I'm here. What's that? What's this? Oh, look at that. Like they're, they're in the wonder of what they're in. As this part of this process of growing up includes putting in foundations and milestones of determining what the world is and the world isn't, determining who you are and who you're not and who people are and who they're not. And once that model's set, not only are you now going to overcome that model, but you're going to keep finding evidence for its validity. And and that's kind of how we are hardwired to survive this life. Unfortunately, as I say in the book, we're often surviving things that just don't need surviving. <laughs> just, there's, no, there's no need to survive speaking on a conference call uh. or, you know, asking somebody out on a date. That's not something to survive. That's something to engage with. Um, but often these things get kind of dwindled down or paired way down into those realms of survival like where we are, you know, at our most base, reactionary, strategizing self. In the book, Stop Doing That, there's a quote that I think is terrific. Um, and, and you mentioned it to me on page five, and I would love for you to read it if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, so it's at the top of page five, and it says, people are little more than a living conversation both internal and spoken, a dialogue in a body, a skin and bone bag that talks, and it talks about everything. And the limit of that talk is the limit of that life, period. Yeah. Now, let's say, I mean, if you just hung out with that statement, you could change your whole life. Agreed. Right. You just pondered the notion that your, com- your complete experience of being alive is woven into what you're talking to yourself and others about consciously and subconsciously. So there are things that you're talking to yourself about. You've been talking to yourself about them for so long. You don't even notice you're talking to yourself about them. However, your experience of being alive is very much interwoven with those conversations. We exist in a 
spectrum of conversation with ourselves and others. And correspondingly, uh, Heidegger, Martin Heidegger, the French, the German uh, philosopher would have said, language is the house of being. That is, who you be is housed in the language that you use. Yeah. That's quite profound when you get like, I'm talking the life that I have. It seems like it's the other way around. It seems like there's a life that I have and I'm talking about it. I don't get that I'm actually weaving my experience of this life in that talk. I want to read one more passage from that same page because this just jumped out to me. And you write, life just is. What you call it is up to you. Bear in mind, you'll have to live with your call. And you do. Right. So we're, we're not, again, it seems... You, you have to kind of sit with this stuff, you know, in many ways. And I even say that in this book, that like you should stop after a chapter and take some notes or highlight some stuff and just think, like allow yourself the grace or the good grace of thinking. And the good grace of thinking is when you go beyond what you agree or disagree with. It's on the other side of that agreement or disagreement is a doorway to thinking. But if you allow yourself to think about well, what do what do I say about life? Like, what's what's my experience of being alive? What's and it's challenging because you're looking. The thing that you're trying to look for is the thing that's doing the looking. Yeah. So it's a little challenging, right? <laughs> it's, a little, <laughs> it's a little challenging to kind of see yourself when it's you that's doing the looking. So it's, it is a little challenging. However, and I and this is why I put some real uh, some real questions in here for you to ponder. But your your experience of this life is unique to you. It's unique to your neighbor, your partner, your kids, your best friends, your siblings, your parents. It's very unique. And it's invariably tied up in what you're saying about this life. Like, what are you saying about it? And one of the things I love about what I've kind of laid out for people here, it's very simple what you say about life. It's like a tree. There's, a, there's like a big, thick trunk to it. And it's very simple. And then it branches out. And we get so focused on the branches, we don't get what's feeding the whole tree. And then this book is designed to really uncover the very nature at your most deepest level, the very nature of what you say to yourself, about yourself, about others, about life, where's this going? And then you'll actually see the point of your self-sabotage. You'll get what it's out to do. On page 89 in Stop Doing That, you write, choose, what are you going to fight for, the past or the future? Your self-sabotaging BS or a long-awaited freedom? So all of your self-sabotage is a repetition of the past. It's a verification. It's to keep you secure in your own little swamp, even though you don't like that swamp, right? Because, and that is another <laughs> thing. That you it's the swamp we know, right? The cozy swamp right, exactly. we know. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and believe it or not, when push comes to shove, you'll actually fight for the swamp you know, rather than face the uncertainty of stepping out of there. And to me, that really is like the real conundrum of being a human being. It's like this desire for something new while addicted to the predictable, right? So I don't think people, I mean, I've even used this phrase, I've even used the phrase comfort zones. But when I look back on saying that, it's not accurate. It's because you're not comfortable in your comfort zones. It's, it's more like a familiar zone. Yeah. So we have these zones of familiarity that we are addicted to that we'd rather be in it than break out of it. And so for each of us, there needs to be these moments in life where you see the impact of persisting with life the way you've lived it. And I mean, really see it and understand it. And that when you turn your face towards the future, you in that moment, in that very moment of your day, you got to make a choice. You're literally going to take an action right now that perpetuates that past or it's some action that starts to bring life to a future that you've yet to realize. I love what you just said. Bring life to a future that you have yet to realize. And this is where that choice thing happens. You know, I think, 
Oftentimes we believe ourselves to be the victim of circumstance, but the circumstance are those that we have created. Yeah, I don't know that I've gone around in my life aware that I'm perpetuating the mess. It, it seems like on the surface of it that I'm struggling to get out of it. Uh. I didn't get like by my struggle to get out of it is what keeps it in existence. And, and what I really needed to do was introduce a whole other kind of aspect into being alive. That is, well, if, if, if I stand at the end, so in the end could be if I look at the end of my life or the end of the next month or the end of the year or the end of the next five years. And if I was to start to paint a picture for myself about the life that I would say I want and who I want to be in that life, and then I look at the current moment of time and I ask myself, what am I doing right now that's aligned with that? And mostly you'll find that you're doing nothing that's aligned with some future. You're mostly surviving and per- surviving the present and perpetuating the past. So I- I'm out for people to really realize that in every moment of every day, and I really mean in the moment you are listening to me say this right now, you have an opportunity to take an action that brings to life your future or perpetuate your past. And that's it. There's nothing else. Wow. You know, it's not often I will say, please run out and buy this book. I always support our guests on the show, but I do believe stop doing that and self-sabotage and demand your life back is a an opportunity for this shift stirring that we are, you know, talking about. We're, we're talking about it tongue in cheek, but you're really catalyzing us to look in the mirror, Gary John Bishop. And I love that. And I thank you for that. Awesome. To learn more about Gary and his work and come back and hang out with me anytime, Gary, please visit GaryJohnBishop.com on Twitter at GaryJohnBishop and on Facebook, that page is one in seven billion. The book we've been talking about today is Stop Doing That and Self-Sabotage and Demand Your Life Back. Go out and shift stir, people. Here comes that break. We'll be right back. And that is a lucky guarantee. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Continuing with our theme of interrupting the cycle of self-sabotage and creating our own luck. My next guests have written a very exciting book about the subject, and they are Gay Hendricks and Carol Klein. Gay Hendricks has served for more than 40 years as one of the major contributors to the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind therapies. He is a New York Times bestselling author, and his books include Conscious Loving and The Big Leap. Carol Klein has been an author, editor, and ghostwriter for more than 20 years, and they are in the house to talk about Lady Luck. Hi, Carol and Gay. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you, Lisa. It is great. Wonderful. (laughs) Yes, I'm very grateful that you're here today. We are coming from our various uh, quarantine sanctuaries around the country. (laughs) 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 And um, it's nice to be with kindred spirits who are seeing the world a bright place in spite of the challenges that many of us are experiencing. Let's talk about luck. And is it really a thing? Does it exist? And Carol, maybe you can start us off. Thank you. I, you know, writing this book has been a lucky occurrence for me. And what I found, you get to really study and own and understand that luck, few people grasp that luck is just a very small part of luck is random chance that most of luck was within our control. It is the result, the combined result of our actions, our attitudes, and our associations over time, and that you have so much control over what happens to you that we don't, luck is not a random occurrence, but more like a wind that blows and that you can harness it by building a sail out of your behaviors that we talked about. 
I love that. Building a sale out of our behaviors. Gay, talk a little bit about how one plants the seeds of luck or fosters luck, mentors luck in our lives. Well, the first thing to do is really start with changing your thoughts. The great uh, American father of American psychology, William James, said back in the 19th century that the greatest discovery of his time was that you could change the circumstances of your life by changing the way you thought about things. And that was incredibly, you know, it was a very big deal because he lived in a time when things were invented like the telephone and the telegraph and the steam engine and the automobile. So there was a lot of great discoveries, but it was his opinion that a key to everything in life is learning to let go of your programming, the things that you've been programmed to think and feel and do, and to innovate, to go beyond by changing what you're thinking about. And one of the biggest ways we can change our thoughts in the area of luck is simply to shift for absolutely no good reason at all to an attitude of, I'm lucky. I deserve to be lucky. I deserve to have all the luck in the world. And it costs you nothing to make those changes in thoughts, but it produces incredible results out there in your life. And I'm my own best customer because I never thought of myself as lucky at all until one magic day that uh, I tell about in the book. And I'll just tell you a quick version of it. I was at a movie theater um, with a friend of mine. And for some reason, they were doing a drawing that day and they had us all put our tickets into the uh, to a, a bowl up front, and then they were going to draw one out. And there were several prizes, but the number one prize was a wristwatch. There was probably 250 people in the theater at least. And this friend of mine, Dewey DeLoach, leaned <laughs> over to me. <laughs> that was his name. Great name. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I grew up in the South where people have some unusual names, <laughs> like Gaylord and Beauregard. And <laughs> those were people that sat next to me in elementary school. But Dewey leaned over and said, watch this. I'm going to win the watch. And I said, what? And I said, how do you know that? And he says, I always win stuff like that. And so sure enough, they pulled <laughs> Dewey's name out of the pot there and he won the wristwatch. And so I got to see that later on. I asked him how he did that, you know, because we were both maybe 14 years old, I think, at the time. And um, I said, how did you do that? And he said he just made up his mind one day to be lucky and when he was a little kid, and then good luck had happened to him ever since. And so I decided to do the very same thing. And so I just decided to adopt the persona of a lucky person and let luck happen to me. And it started happened to me right away, as you'll see in the book, and uh, and has continued to happen up until this very day. Well, Dewey was your luck mentor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Carol, I for, for me, my experience of luck is that it has always been the crossroads of persistence and opportunity. You know that it's it's not without effort. Luck doesn't happen just randomly, although for some it might. But, you know, if without putting some energy or focus on the things that we want, it's pretty hard for them to manifest. That's a really great observation. And I think if people would think about their luck, they might see that, yes, there was there might have been some, you know, lucky break. But a lot of it has to do. And it's what's so funny is that sometimes what can, looks like a random sort of serendipitous thing is actually the result of actions you might have put into, you know, motion a year, uh, a week, a month ago. And so it looks random, but actually I believe that the, that what we do, we have eight secrets in the book that if you really consciously, intentionally take these things in, four of them are core shifts about your beliefs about luck. And Gay told you about the very first one just now. And then we have to, you know, sort of clear the deck so that your deservability arises. Uh, mindset, as Gay just described, is so important. And it is the secret for why lucky charms, quote unquote, you know, your lucky socks, your lucky golf club, why they work have to do with that commitment and mindset about luck. And then you have to, you know, work with negative emotions you have. And then there have to, your goals have to really resonate and be luck worthy for them to attract luck, for giving luck a reason to visit. 
And then we have four daily practices. And we, what we found, you know, Gay has been talking about this for years and years. And what we've seen in the positive psychology, you know, literature is that these things are what constitute luck. But here's the thing in your own life. Think about it. Yes, you were probably prepared. You know, luck is preparedness meeting opportunity. Seneca said that, you know, ancient Roman and or Greek. Sorry, I don't know my Greeks and my Romans. He was a Roman. Thank you so much. I should have left it alone. (laughs) Ah, That's okay. (laughs) He was one of those guys. (laughs) One of those philosopher guys. Anyway. I was a a Latin student and Miss Emma Williams, my Latin (laughs) teacher, would never forgive me if I let you pass off Seneca as a Greek. Thank you so much. Yes, Mr. (laughs) Roman Seneca. But his luck, his preparedness meeting opportunity has to do with also, I mean, one of the biggest strokes of luck in my life was a moment of knee-buckling fear that I had the courage to overcome for asking for what I wanted. That was the lucky break. And then I really followed through with persistence, with, you know, effort, with talent. Luckily, I had a little talent in this area and was willing to work because that's what created a lucky streak that continues to this day. But it started with a moment. So we have all of these things that you can do to really raise your level of luck by consciously creating it in your life. Let's go back to the word deservability, because I think this is a big part of um, luck uh, knocking on our door or not. In fact, it doesn't come to us unless we really think that we're worth it. You know, I really agree with that. Um, In one of my other books, The Big Leap, I talk about a fundamental issue that plagues humanity. And that is that a lot of us go around with a feeling inside that we're fundamentally flawed in some way, that we're fundamentally undeserving of love or good things to happen to us. And our mind has usually made up a story that it's because of something we did or something that happened to us or something that somebody told us that somehow we were deficient and not deserving of the good things in life. So one of the biggest things human beings have to do, and this is, you know, I saw my first client in 1968, and here it is, 2020. So uh, I can't think of any exceptions to what I'm about to say. But human beings always have the power to change how we feel about ourselves, that we're not stuck with our early programming, no matter what kind of early programming you had, you always have the power to change your mind and set up a different sequence of thoughts in your mind. And it only takes a split second to shift from I'm fundamentally undeserving of love and good things to, hey, I deserve all the good things and love and life. But if you can get even beyond that is where I'd like to see people go, which is to get beyond the whole concept of having to deserve something, because who's really going to ultimately decide whether we deserve something or not. So I just as soon have people let go of that whole idea and just learn to love themselves to the best of their ability and learn to love whatever's there, because whatever's there is obviously what needs to be loved in that moment. Carol, I've got a question for you and Gay as well. When we think about how we interpret luck or experience luck, it kind of goes to that glass half full or half empty experience. And let me let me finish my thought here that if I view the world as a hospitable place where difficult things happen, my experience of my life and luckiness is going to be better than or uh, more fulfilling than if the glass is always half empty and in scarcity and bad things are just waiting to happen. Yes. Uh, I mean, we could also look as feeling lucky as being optimistic, being an optimist. Yes. So you, you hit it on the head with, you know, glass half empty, half full. There's a, you know, really significant uh, switch in positive psychology when they talked about learned helplessness versus learned optimism. Yes, um, that was a big switching point, a big turning point. And I think luck has something to do with that same mindset. And we have a, one of the most, my most, you know, beloved chapter in our book has to do with seeing luck in every situation. Yes. And <laughs> really, you know, but not in a, you know, 
relentless positivity, whitewashing spiritual bypass way, not in a way where you're just whistling while you're crying inside. I'm not a, I don't think Gay and I, either one of us, Gay is the most authentic person you could ever meet, would, 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 you know, counsel that. But there is a way to learn to see the luck in every situation. And it's, uh, we use it, we call it radical gratitude. And it's a, it's a kind of a self inquiry. Uh, did you have a question about that before I continue? Um, no, I want to. I want to circle back to that. Continue because that that is beautiful. The radical gratitude practice. It's a practice, and it's not a situation where you should feel grateful or look on the bright side or count your blessings. It is a moment where you let yourself feel whatever comes up around a challenging situation. And many of us are in that place right now. For some people, uh, self, you know, social distancing is, you know, they've been born, they've been training for this their whole life. They get to do them with the world's blessing. <laughs> and for others, you know, for others, it's, it's very distressing and constricting. Yeah. And so to look at this and say, have your feelings and then say, could I be grateful? Just with a, a, a gentle curiosity. Is there some, could I be grateful for this too? And when you just let yourself feel into that, you'll be so surprised that something will come up. And when we feel lucky, I would say subjectively feeling lucky is more important than what other people would consider being lucky. Yes. And Gay tells a wonderful story. Gay, tell them about <laughs> Wait, that time in India. Hold oh, that go thought. Ahead. Gay, sorry. hold that thought and that story. We're going to need to jump off for a quick break. But before we do, I want to give you the contact points for Gay Hendricks and Carol Klein. We've been talking about Conscious Luck, Eight Secrets to Intentionally Change Your Fortune. To connect with them, please do so at ConsciousLuck.com, on Twitter at Gay Hendricks, and on Facebook, Conscious Luck. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. talking with Gay Hendricks and Carol Klein about their newest book. We're talking about ending the cycle of self-sabotage and creating our own luck. Let's get back to the conversation. And prior to the break, Carol had asked Gay to share a story about his luckiness. There are actually a couple that he wants to share. The first was, Gay, you have a story of while you were in India, traveling in India. Yes. In my mid-30s, I was in India. And as often happens, I think, to many people in, in our mid-30s, it was a time when I was wondering, what am I really doing here? You know, what is my real contribution I want to make here during my brief time on this planet? And so I was kind of in a big dialogue about that. And I had a couple of months off and I made my first trip to India. And I was um, I spent a couple of months there trekking around in the Himalayas and things like that. But on this particular day, I was sitting on a, a near a bank of a river and I was watching um probably, I don't remember how many it was, maybe 15 or 20 kids go down to the riverbank, pick up a big rock, and then walk up out of sight up this long hill where a particular guru was building a temple up there at the top. And so as I was just basically sitting there trying to find some shade, it was about 105 degrees, and so I was sitting in the shade of a tree, and um, but watching this brutal sun, and I was feeling really sorry for them, you know, oh my gosh, you know, and I realized and I was told that they were only being paid a rupee a day for this, which was about a dime. And so here are these kids brutally 
laboring away under the hot sun of India for a dime a day. And so I, I was working up a real sense of depression about that. And then this other person who was with me pointed out that there were a bunch of other kids, probably 40 or 50 of them, that were squatting further down on the riverbank just watching the other kids work. And he said those were the kids that hadn't even been able to get the dime a day job. And so I was feeling this sense of heaviness come upon me about that. And then as oftentimes, if you just let yourself feel whatever the heaviness is, it'll turn into light. And I got this amazing feeling that came out of that of, in a sense, letting go of the whole notion that any of us deserve anything or that any of us are fated to be any particular way. It's just up to us to take whatever the circumstances of life are and learn to thrive in that in the best way we possibly can. And so I drew a lot of different messages out of that moment, but one of them kind of ties into the thing about my brother that I was going to mention, that when we were kids, he and I would often ride in the backseat of the car while Mom was taking us on some trip to the beach. We lived in Florida, and so it was quite a trip from where we lived in the middle of the state over to the beach. And so it would take an hour or two of us sitting in the backseat of the car. And so we we would play this game sometime. My brother was older than I was, and I didn't catch on to this for quite a long time. But we would play this game where we picked a color, and then we looked for cars that matched that color. And... It relates to the point Carol made earlier that if you start looking for luck to happen, if you start looking for situations that you could possibly be lucky in, if you start looking at life as a series of situations where you're you're being presented over and over again with situations that could bring you great luck if you're open to it. And so my brother would always pick out white cars, and I would pick out blue cars or something like that. It took me quite a few losing things to realize (laughs) that rent-a-cars in Florida are almost all white. And uh, (laughs) my brother had figured this out or read it somehow. This is great. (laughs) The closer we were to the beach, it was like all the cars were painted white. And uh, so he would often win with this enormous score. But somehow I never learned, you know, that's the fate of little brothers is we never figure out these things. Well, that was a perfect example of conscious luck. He consciously picked the lucky one to to choose, the white car. (laughs) And I also wanted to piggyback, you know, one of the things when Gay told me that story about India, the thing that stood out for me is he was feeling so sorry for those kids having to, you know, labor in the sun. And there was a whole group of kids who were looking at those kids as lucky. So, you know, what is luck subjectively? You know, and then Gay felt lucky, he told me, because he had more money in his pocket to pay all those kids for a month, you know, even though he was a down and, you know, not very rich person. Yeah. So that feeling, uh, you're, you know, feeling lucky, which is what we talked about in Practical Gratitude. I love that story. I thought it was so beautiful. Thanks for sharing it again, Gay. I love hearing it. Yeah, that is a that is an adorable story about your brother. And, and what are ways that we can bolster luck? Like one of the practices that I do consistently when I was living in the city, now I'm out in the country. And it was sort of manifesting that parking space in the middle of downtown Los Angeles. Like, I I have a reputation for being that person. Now, I don't gloat over it. But I put my attention as I'm driving to where I need to go. And sure enough, there's the spot. I've had that experience so many times. In fact, in our seminars, oftentimes, uh, here at the Hendricks Institute, we uh, teach people how to be luckier and do the things that we talk about in the book. And we'll oftentimes teach a certain principle about luck before lunch and then send people off to lunch. And then afterwards, we'll ask them how many people had lucky experiences like finding the parking place right in front of the restaurant or something along those lines. And you'd be surprised that just a little tiny shift of your thinking about something like this can make such a huge difference in what happens afterwards in your life. And it's such a great example. It's a small subset of being in the right place at the right time. And that's one of our chapters. And it really, I mean, I think the same thing that was at work with your car story, Gay, is the same thing. When you are looking, you know you're going to find it. Your brain actually physically sends you more data to help you fulfill that intention. Yeah. Uh, let me 
me just um, add one more thing here. You have a, a, a little uh, acronym, a VLP. <laughs> talk, <laughs> talk a little bit about being a VLP, what that means. Well, VLP means committing to being a very lucky person. And I think everybody in the world can become a VLP because it really is, as Gay said, a mindset. The very first step, at least, is a mindset decision. And VLP people are, they're, they're lucky in love. They're lucky in parking spaces. They're lucky in their chosen work. They're lucky with money because they are open to luck. Their mindset sees, they have the ability to see lucky opportunities. They have the right people around them. They trust their intuition. Statistically, unlucky people tend to be very overthinkers. They don't trust themselves. They make a lot of mistakes. But statistically, lucky people are those that feel that they can trust themselves and that they are going to have. It's like that pronoia that they are, the world is out to help them. So it's a whole mindset that you start with the commitment and then goes through the, the other seven steps that we recommend. I want to, uh, I want to highlight the word Carol mentioned commitment, because one yeah. of the keys in the book is how to make a commitment to being luckier. And we have a number of suggested processes in the book that will take you through how to generate that kind of living conscious commitment to being luckier. You know, I want to also ask you about essence pace, because I understand the VLP and then the the way through which we get there is at essence pace. But talk about what yeah. that is. Yes, actually, that um, my wife, Katie, that uh, we've been together now 40 years. And even before I married her, I kept hearing about this really amazing dance movement therapist in uh, Palo Alto, California. And then finally we met and I ended up falling madly in love with her. So I've been um, in married to a dance movement therapist now for the past 40 years. And she's called my attention to so much in the area of pure physical movement. And so if you just start there to understand your essence pace, it's what pace do you like to move through life at? You know, like we've had couples in here that we're working with them on solving problems in their relationship. And one of their problems is very simply that one of them moves at a different pace than the other one, even walking down the street. <laughs> yes. uh, we had one couple where he likes to kind of dawdle and look in windows and she walks like a, you know, a banshee forward straight, boom, 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 boom. And he's an artist type. She kind of comes from the corporate world. So there's a big difference. But how do you like to move through life? What, pace do you like to take a walk at? Is it brisk or is it an amble or is it a saunter? So applying that to all of your life, you know, what is the pace that you like to do everything with? And what we find is that when you home in closer to what we call your essence pace, how the, the speed you like to move through life at, that's when more magic begins to happen to you because you're putting out a positive message just by virtue of how you're moving. What that means to me is uh, moving in congruency. In other words, like what we think, what we say, what we do, and how we present to the world are in alignment. And the byproduct of this is that essence pace, which invites more luck. That's exactly it. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, there's a beautiful quote from Thich Nhat Hanh, and he says, you know, be aware of the contact between your feet and the earth. Only print peace and serenity on the earth. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. We are out of time, and I want to invite you both to come back anytime you want. Because <laughs> this has be been my pleasure. lucky for me to have the two of you together with me today. You can connect with Gay Hendricks and Carol Klein at ConsciousLuck.com, on Twitter at Gay Hendricks, and on Facebook, that page is Conscious Luck. Carol and Gay, thank you. Thank you thank so you much, so Lisa. so much. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Gary John Bishop, Gay Hendricks, and Carol Klein, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day and remember to stay safe. <laughs>
Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU-RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.